Okay, we're going to get started. Welcome to the winter course called Judaism's Gifts to the World, How Major Jewish Ideas Evolved into Universal Values. We have six classes in this course. Today's lesson is going to be lesson number one, which is called No Man in Island. Can you see from there? Okay. Uh, lesson number two is going to tell us about discovering one, the extraordinary impact of monotheism. Lesson three is the divine image, who says life is sacred. Lesson four will be about created equal, exploring a not-so-self-evident not so truth. And lesson five is dropping out and tuning in how Shabbos changed the world and transforms our lives. And lesson six, time to improve the Jewish concept of progress. Just a little bit of an introduction to what this course is all about. We know that the Jewish people, the Torah, the Jewish faith, has given many gifts to civilization. The Jewish people in general are a gifted people. Many artists, lawyers, doctors. You probably heard about the two fellows sitting on a bench. Two elderly people talking to each other and saying, you know, you know, I heard. You said, there's a good doctor, Jack tells Mitch. Mitch looks back at Jack and says, good? Excellent. He's a genius, my boy. Last year when I was in the hospital, they said I needed an operation and I couldn't afford it. I gave it to my son. He touched up the x-rays. Boom! I, they left me alone. <laughs> and contrary to all the stereotypes as well, as Jewish people have one of the generous amongst all the nations of the world, not only in their financial resources, but also the Jewish people have famously shared with the world anything from technology to basic staples, whether you call it Google, the theory of relativity, pacemakers, polio vaccine... The Jewish people are famous for creating ideas and inventions that impacted modern life. But that's not what we're going to be talking about today. We're not going to be talking about in this course about the gifts that Jews gave as individuals, their genius, their brilliance, their talents. What are we going to talk about in these six weeks? We're going to spend time talking about how many things in the modern society come from the Jewish faith itself. Not from the Jewish people, but what Judaism as a faith has to offer and change the world. There are a number of things and ideas in Judaism that brought this world and that have dramatically changed the way we ever see things, of course, for the better. And it's not only the way we see things, the way society acts, feels, and does things which we take for granted today, and where they all started from came from olden Judaism. So what we're going to do in, most of our, in all of our classes, we're going to take six ideas. And these six ideas were six ideas that had a global impact, six ideas that are contemporary, six ideas that are practical. And these six ideas we will see where basically they started from Judaism and from there the rest of the world caught on to today them being basic norms. So just for today to start, let's start with a little exercise here on page number two, exercise 1.1. We'll do this quickly. If you had the ability to create a perfect society, what would be the values and attitudes 
about life that you would instill in this society. Imagine you were given the power, whatever you wish, that it's up to you to create the most greatest society, a perfect society. What would be the values and attitudes that you would instill in this society that you would demand, that you had the power, and if you say it, you're the genie everybody would follow? Anybody? Equality. Equality. Anybody else? Life, peace, shelter. Life, peace, shelter. Okay. No problem. Let's hear somebody else. Mm -hmm. Responsibility and reason, okay? Caring. So they all, if you notice, they all come from the same branch, so to speak. Just the same tree, but different branches. Equality, caring, responsibility, responsibility, all thinking about somebody else's life, peace, all those things are all about how we value and what we can do about making a positive change in the world. Now, can you imagine societies that wouldn't value human life? Societies that don't recognize individuals' rights, don't even see the meaning in life, a sense of missing sense, social responsibility, humanity, a society that was pursuing war instead of peace, individualism instead of sharing or caring, so to speak, people who didn't aim for a better future, it happened. It was like that, as we're going to see in different classes that we're going to go through, the concepts where many years ago there were such societies. Yes, but not primarily. And in the present course, what we're going to look at is to see how society today, things that we've taken for granted, are part and parcel and part of our DNA as Jewish people. And you think, well... It's because I'm a rabbi and I'm standing here and I like to preach about Judaism, so therefore I'm sticking up for Judaism, so to speak. But in fact, here's an example from the second U.S. president, one of the framers of our Constitution, the Founding Fathers, John Adams, and text number one said the following. I will insist that the Hebrews have done more to civilize men than any other nation. And here's the words, interesting thing he says. If I were an atheist and believed in blind eternal fate, I should still believe that fate has ordained the Jews to be the most essential instrument for civilizing the nations. If I were an atheist of another sect who believed or pretend to believe that all is ordered by chance, I should believe that chance has ordered the Jews to preserve, to propagate. To all mankind, a doctrine of supreme intelligence, wise, almighty, sovereign of the universe, which I believe to be the great essential principle of all morality and consequently of all civilization. This is John Adams is referring to over here that 3,300 years ago, the Jews gathered at Mount Sinai, 40 years later coming into the land of Israel, and these people are basically one big family, the offsprings of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. We today are the Jews who have brought to civilization all basic principles. Everything else that came later, which was Christianity, which came a thousand years after the Jews have received the Torah and Sinai, only later on was a sort of a breakaway from Judaism. And the reason why most non-Jews elected to go to Christianity at the time was, number one, Roman Empire at the time adopted Christianity, which was then the superpower of the world. But a lot of what Christianity was, was taking Judaism and shelling away or taking away 
all the complicated parts of it. For example, one of the biggest things then was that because people were into their physique, which was that you, they didn't require circumcision from Christianity perspective. But what is the Christianity based on? Judaism, on the Bible. The same thing that happened 3,000 years, uh, what happened, I'm sorry, not 3,000, uh, what happened many years later was that Islam came along as well, also based on the Torah, and what are they all called? They were all known as Abrahamic religions, religions that stemmed from Abraham. In fact, in the census of 2015, they have, in one of the, uh, those you know, census, whatever they do, they said 55% of the world's population today ascribes to one of these three major religions. And these three major religions, where do they all come from? The Abrahamic religions all start from Judaism, started 3,300 years ago as the Jewish people stood at Sinai. Wow. That is why, as we can see, Judaism's contribution to the world is so important. And many of the basic observances or many of the basic attitudes and behaviors that we do today all come from Judaism. But that's all part of Judaism's religious or theological influence, which we're not going to discuss necessarily. Only one of the classes is going to be about monotheism. But what we see more is what Judaism teaches us. In number one, Judaism tells us... Oops. Here we go. I'm too fast. What Judaism ideas have impacted civilization are beyond religious belief. The question is, are they relevant today? What are, how are they relevant today? What message do they give us for the future? What do they tell us? How do they help us? And what we will see, how they affect our lives in a day-to-day life. You know, they say a story about once this uh, Hebrew school grandma was watching her granddaughter by the Hebrew school show and his daughter was playing the violin, they were playing violin and playing Havanagila so nicely. And she sees on the side this man sitting there and crying. So she walks over to him and doesn't she say, isn't it beautiful, the next generation celebrating Judaism? So he looks at her and says, no, I'm not really Jewish. She says, well, why are you crying? He says, because I'm a musician. (laughs) (laughs) And it wasn't so great. (laughs) (laughs) So most of you noted and most of our answers, when we looked about and we said, what can be done to be able to make civil... If I had the power to change civilization, if I was the one with the power, what would the thing do? All of you said was more about caring for another person in some shape or form. So let's turn our attention to this concept, and that's what we're going to talk about today. On exercise 1.2, we have an instance. You don't have to write it down if you'd like to. Write down an instance in which you saw someone in need and, he- and, and help them, why you helped them, and write down an instance in which you saw someone in need and did not help them, and why you did not help them. Hmm. Or let's put it this way. Why would you help somebody in need? Because they need it. Because they need it. Okay, because you see them and you have an ability. I think that's very wise. Because you see them, you know that you're able to help them, and therefore you're able to help them. Let's flip the coin now. Why wouldn't you help somebody if you see a person in need? Put myself in danger. Put yourself in danger. What else? Uh, That's it. Is there only other? You might not be capable. Okay, I might not be capable of helping them. 
I might be upset at them because I think maybe they don't deserve it. You think they're not deserving of it? There might be other people there who are helping them. So you'd be okay, there might be other people helping them, right? So there's a lot of reasons why we would not help them. The first instinct when we see somebody on the side of the road, why would you think what comes across first? Out of curiosity, to help them or not to help them? Honestly. Years ago, years ago, years ago. You would have helped them. I would have helped. My father pulled over to help a person that was thumbing a ride, looked like a perfectly nice person, nearly killed him. (laughs) Nearly killed my father and never would I ever stop again. So years ago, you no problem to give somebody that was hitchhiking, right? That's right. Oh, no problem. Today, don't oh. you think twice before you give somebody a hitchhike? I don't do it. I don't even Ten think. Times. You don't do it at all, right? No, don't Ten do times. it. So over here, just... I do. Oh, you... Okay. You do it? I do. One second. What can you... Excuse me, one second, one second. The person nearly killed my father. Okay, very good. Okay, so now that's exactly my point here. So let's over here, let's just look at these two cases. We're just taking these for, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but just taking it as an example and we'll start exploring it. We notice over here, one of the reasons, the instinct before when we asked, would you help somebody if you saw somebody in need? Everybody said, for sure I would. But all of a sudden, I gave an example. Mm-hmm. Would you give somebody a ride where it's hitchhiking? All of a sudden, there was hesitation. Okay? Just keep in mind that difference, and we'll get to it. But that's what we said the exception was. You're if you're capable. Okay. okay. Very good. I'm going to just throw a little bit of a monkey wrench in here. How many times do we underestimate our safety and our capability? Okay. <laughs> Or underestimate or overestimate? Always. Underestimate. Okay. Underestimate or overestimate, regardless. Underestimate our capability. Overestimate our lack of safety. I'm not saying you should be picking up strangers. My, our, what yes, I'm saying. You are. No, that's what I'm saying is our go-to reaction, is it automatically to help the person? Or is it to find a reason why I shouldn't feel guilty that I didn't help the person. So you okay. Depends on how you help. Okay. Years ago, I passed by an accident that happened. There was a lot of traffic. I would have been capable of getting out of my car and helping the people in the accident. Instead, I pulled over to the nearest safe spot and dialed nine one one. Correct. Right. So today's day and age, probably the smartest thing is not to stop on the side of the road and help the person to call nine one one and whatever it may be. I'm just throwing it out there, just, just keep that in mind. But now let's move on. Today what we're going to focus on is a key Jewish fa- value called responsibility. Responsibility is a clear theme throughout the Torah, throughout Jewish history of how we have to be responsible for one another. And just to take an example, we're going to start with two great people in the Torah of how they reacted to respon- being responsibility and how they would act to something that would happen in their time. Rabbi? Yes. When you say, when you're talking about the responsibilities, are they strictly within the Jewish community? or open? We're starting. We'll get to it, okay? So we're talking about responsibility to one another. The first two people that we talk about in the Torah is to take, to take our examples of people who are given 
the ability to be responsible for others are two great people, and we are going to contrast them, is Noah, who was told to build an ark, and Abraham. And we will see the difference between the way Noah reacted to a situation and to the way Abraham reacted to a, to a situation. Let's start with Noah. God comes to Noah and he tells Noah there's going to be a flood because the people are destructive and destroying the world. You have 120 years to put an ark together so that you and your family and all the different kinds of the species of the animals should be able to be saved. It took him 120 years to build it. That was even without a building department. You see? How, how old was <laughs> when, when, um, he was 600 years old when he started. Okay? So, but history doesn't begin with Noah. Right? Who were the people at the time during Noah? They weren't Jews. In fact, today, what do we call Gentiles in the Hebrew language? Called B'nai Noah, the children of Noah. Descendants of Noah. So these people were at the time. Where does the Jewish lineage begin with? Abraham. Why is it that the Jewish lineage begins with Abraham, not Noah? Abraham was before the Torah was given, so was Noah. Why was Abraham chosen to be the forefather of the Jewish people, the chosen people, and Noah only considered as the Gentiles? One possible answer lies in the difference in the way they reacted to the people of their generation. And let's see what happens. Yes. There was, was only everybody. A, the Jews were called Ivrim, Hebrews. Avram was called a Hebrew. And his descendants after, Avram, after Avram. Correct. Called Der Enosh. Enosh, that's how they get the name of people. Okay. Enosh was a person and as well people. So, look in text number two. We see two, a commandment where God comes to Noah and says as follows. Page 5. God says to Noah, I have decided to put an end to all the people, for the earth is filled with robbery because of them, and I am destroying them from the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make room in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. Noah did everything God commanded him. Okay? Now let's see Abraham. Text number, text number 3, page 6. God said to Abraham, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah are so great that their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see what they have done is so bad as the outcry has reached me. If it is, I will destroy them. Abraham approached and said, God, will you even destroy the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? You will destroy it and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people who are in it? So over here we find two things. Why was Abraham chosen the Jew, as the chosen as the forefather? Because look what happened when God comes to Noah. God comes to Noah and he said, I have decided to put an end to all the people because of their terrible behavior. Therefore, build yourself an ark where you and your family and the species of the world are going to be speared. What does Noah say? Great, I'm saved. I'll do everything you say. Does Noah petition or care about the people in this time? Does Noah even respond or think about and say, maybe we can find some alternative? Not at all. I'm saved. I'm in the ark. Everybody else could be in the flood. 
For that reason, the Zohar says that Isaiah, when he uses the terminology of the flood, Isaiah calls the flood the waters of Noah. It was his fault. His fault because he did not pray on behalf of the people of his time. He couldn't care less about the people of his time as long as he was safe and secure in the Teva and the Ark. Everybody else, he did as God told him. He followed God's commandment. But it wasn't just him, it was him and his family. Fine, him and his, his family. One second, him and his family. His father, he loved Please, fine. his family, He only him and his family were in, yes, his family, his children, him and his children and, the, and their wives were in the ark. Mm-hmm. But he did not pray on behalf of the people. Let me just finish and contrast this to Abraham. Okay, no worries. However, if we contrast this to Abraham, Abraham, God comes along and says, there are the people of Sodom and Amorah who are misbehaving. What was their sin? What was their sin? The evil that they committed to one another. They did not allow guests. They stole from one another. They cheated one another. Any person who tried to welcome a guest into their home was punished. Punished severely. Tortured to death. But what does Abraham respond? Will you even destroy the righteous with the wicked? And Abraham didn't finish there. He didn't just ask God, okay, will you? And then keep quietly. He went into a bargaining scheme with God. And said, God, maybe we can find 50 righteous people and in their honor the city should be saved. God said, there's no 50. Maybe 40, there's no 40. Maybe 30, there's no 30. Maybe 20, there's no 20. Finally, he said, maybe there's 10. God said, there's not even 10 righteous people there. That's it. Here you see the advantage that Abraham had over Noah. He was chosen to be the father of the Jewish people because Avram, Abraham was a person who his conduct was responsibility. He epitomized kindness. He went out of the way to regardless who the person was. He can be the most evil, treacherous individual as the people of Sodom. He still was looking for some kind of mercy. Maybe there's ten people that in their honor should be saved. Abraham was a person who would sit out by his tent in the heat of the desert looking for guests. While the people of Sodom were the antithesis of what he was. Destroyed any person who brought guests. And still in all, his care for others led him to ask and beseech God, maybe, maybe, maybe we can save these people. And over here we see why God chose him. And we see it just in text number four, where God tells Abraham, Abraham will surely become a great powerful nation. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him, for I love Abraham. Why? What's the reason? Because his children and his household, because he instructs his children and his household to follow the path of God. What, what do they do? By charity. doing charity and justice. What, would, what did you want to say? Oh, I was going to ask, um, what was God's relationship with Noah, with Abraham, prior to God's When you talk about relationship, in what way? Were they in talking terms? And what, what do you? There was an engagement of some kind. Yeah. Um, and Noah 
There was no, there was a miraculous event that happened to Abraham. But all of those events and relationships that Abraham had with God beforehand were all theological. They were never had to do with interpersonal or other people. True. There was a relationship, the very fact... Okay, so there was a relationship. There were people, just, I don't want to get too much into the history behind it, but there were, because we're not talking about the book of Genesis, in fact, our third course in the summer, in the springtime, we're going to have about Noah is going to be people of the Bible, so we'll talk about that. Um, but in the, at the time, in the generations between Adam and Noah, there were people who believed in God. There were people who studied Torah, the Torah, the eventual Torah. And one of the people, if you recall, was a person by the name Hanoch, who was a great-grandfather of Noah, who he died young at 350 years old, because he was one of the only people who believed in God to such an extent that God said such a person shouldn't stay and get contaminated by all the evil people. Noah's great-grandfather, Mr. Salah, was considered a wonderful, a very special person, holy person, to the extent that the flood was delayed seven days for his shiva period to be finished. His father, Lamech, was a holy person. So they all already had a stature of holiness. There was a relationship of godly intuition that was between the two of them to a certain extent. Maybe he hasn't lived through any miraculous particular event as Abraham, but don't forget, by Abraham, in contrast to Noah, Abraham had no prior education. Abraham's father was a pagan and was serving idols. Abraham was a self-discoverer, as we're going to talk about monotheism in the third class. So yes, you bring up a very good point about the, monothe- about the relationship, but on a level, if you want to call it, Noah had a deeper relationship because it was ingrained within his family of the relationship with God. And over here we're referring to of how they related to others, not in how they related to God. So what we see very clearly over here is that Abraham's care for humanity was so great but what was so great about it, and what was the reason, the overwhelming reason, why God chose Abraham to be the one that his children should be the chosen nation, was for the fact that the covenant was made to Abraham, our forefather, because he was going to pass on to his generations after him the concept of charity and justice. Our sages actually tell us that there are three defining traits of a Jewish person. And one of them is kindness. The three of them is bashfulness, kindness, and merciful. And two out of the three are caring for one another. Not only that, Judaism goes on to teach us that Abraham exemplified a basic principle in Torah, which we find in text number five, the Medrash says, all Jews are responsible for one another. We are like a ship where a hole has been ruptured in one room. It cannot be said that one room has been ruptured, the entire ship is ruptured. The principle of social responsibility animates the laws of the Torah. The Torah forbids us standing idly when we see somebody getting hurt. The Torah tells us that when we see somebody whose donkey is laden with too much load, we have to help that individual. The Torah continuously tells us that whenever we see somebody in need, somebody's car broke down, we should be able to help them. Of course, we shouldn't jeopardize our own safety. But again, the Torah tells us, doesn't just say such things are laudable, beautiful, 
but they're integral. It's a basic principle in the Torah. We have a mitzvah that guides us and teaches us right and wrong, and part of our integral part of the Torah is that we need to care for another. So when we talk about caring for another, it's not only caring for another person, but there's also a question of social responsibility, caring for how we relate to the poor members of society. The Torah commands us to give charity to the poor, as you can see in text number 6, on page 8. If there will be a needy person among you, one of your brothers, and in one of your cities, in your land, and God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart, you shall not close your hand to your needy brother. Rather, you shall open your hand to him and give him enough to supply him with what he lacks. This is a general mitzvah which, of giving to the poor. And the Torah also has many specific commandments when it comes to helping out the needy. For example, in those days especially where most people were agriculturally involved, so there were mitzvahs that had to do with the field. For example, any time you harvest your field, the corner, you can see it in chart, figure 1.1, um, on page 9, there is something called peya. Uh, the corner of every field that was harvested had to stay unharvested for the poor people to collect it. There was leket, which was if there were one or two uh, stalks of wheat which fell out of your bundle, you had to leave it on the floor for the poor person to collect it. You had shikha, if I forgot one or two bundles in the field and I didn't bring it back to the warehouse, I have to leave it for the poor person to be able to collect it. There was peret, which works now in the vineyards. If I have fallen grapes while the vine was being picked, I have to leave it for the poor people. The same ideas, which is called oilois, small bunches of grapes that were on the vine, really small ones, you have to leave that for the poor people to collect. Not only that, there were different tithes that had to be given at the time of the temple. There was a tithe which was called miser ani, which is a tithe for the poor, one-tenth of your produce twice every seven years, the third and sixth year, had to be given to the poor people. So we see very clearly here, the Torah has, in the Torah, there are many different laws, and these are just some of them, where we have a social responsibility to the care for the downtrodden, for those that are not as uh, available or don't have as funds as we need, charity for the poor, and there are many mitzvahs in the Torah that direct us to this goal. When we talk about social responsibility until now, we spoke about personal obligation. Me as an individual, what I have to do to help a poor person. Is there an obligation, a communal obligation, and can the community leaders enforce such a communal obligation of social responsibility? For example, there was a question that was brought to a, 14th, a late 13th, early 14th century scholar. His name, well known as the Rajba, Rabbi Shlomo ben Aderas. He was a philosopher, a doctor, and a great rabbi as well, and a commentator on the Talmud. He was a rabbi of Barcelona. And a question was brought before him where the wealthy people versus the middle class at the time had a debate. Can the community force the people to do a social responsibility. Text number 7 is the question that he was asked. Page 10. 
There are many poor people in the city, and the cost of living is high. A dispute has arisen between the well-off members of the community, the wealthy upper class argue, that the poor should go collecting door to door, and we all give them food every day to sustain them, because the middle class is also obligated to feed the poor just as we are. The middle class disagrees and says that the poor should not be made to go from door to door, and it should not be made to go from out and beg because they are brethren. They argue that the sustenance of the poor is a communal obligation and all must contribute towards this in accordance with their wealth. Please let us know which side is correct. And here's the debate. The wealthy members said, listen over here. We know that every single person has their personal responsibility to help. It's a mitzvah in the Torah. Give the poor person charity. Let the poor people go door to door and whoever wants to give them money will give them money. Wealthy, poor, middle class. Why make it a communal obligation? The middle class said no. There are poor people. Why should they be uh, hurt? And why should they have to go out and beg? Let's make a tax. The wealthier will give more. We're based on how much you earn, everybody will contribute. And like this, we'll have a fund, and this fund will support the poor people in the town. Of course, the wealthy people were upset by that because that means that they will have to give more while the middle class will have to give less. And this was the debate that, was, that came in front of the Rajbar of Shlomo ben Adaris. While the, main, the middle class maintained that charity is a communal obligation, the wealthy maintained charity is an individual's obligation and therefore the community should not have the right to impose what we should do. And if you look in the next three texts, text numbers 8a, 8b, and 8c, I'll give you a moment to read them, and let's see what your conclusions, the answer that you think the Rajbah will give. Read text 8a, 8b, and 8c. And you tell me what the Rajbah's answer would be. Correct. Okay. Have we read all three? (laughs) 
based on what we read in text number 8a, 8b, and 8c, what do you suppose Rabbi Shlomo ben Adaris' response was? Communal. It's communal. Okay. Anybody disagree with Shmuel? No. Why? Why would you say it's communal? <laughs> The Rajba not only did he respond that it's a communal responsibility, not only did he say the middle class were 100% right, he even actually responded in a, and scorned them and said, it seems like that not only was money in short supply, but apparently common sense was also in short supply. Oh. What does it tell us in text number text 8a, 8b, and 8c? First of all, Maimonides tells us what's the highest form of giving charity? That each individual should give the person who they see? No. no. The highest form of charity is what we call today a pushka. You put it in the box, you don't know who's getting it. And the person who's getting it doesn't know who's getting, who he got it from. You know that you have to help the person. That person knows that he has to be helped. What does it tell us in text number 8b? 8b tells us about the concept of we're there was a person who was forced to give a certain amount of money to charity. That means the community has the ability not only to impose a tax for the poor, but has the ability to enforce that tax on the poor. Let's go to, uh, not, I'm, I'm sorry, on the wealthy or on, not on the wealthy or any person in the community to pay the, for the poor. Text number 8c takes it even a step further. Over here we have a person who was Naktimun Ben-Gurion. Naktimun Ben-Gurion was known as a very wealthy individual. And Naktimun Ben-Gurion gave great money to charity. But not according to his wealth. And for that he was reprimanded. He didn't give according to his ability. He could have gave more. He was a generous guy. But nothing compared to, not even percentage-wise, almost nothing to what he was compared to. It's like a billionaire giving a $180 check. It's not even a postage stamp. Over here, what we see clearly, what the Rajba responded was, that the methods of charity, number one, a communal fund to preserve the dignity, officers have the authority to compel, and it needs to be proportionate to one's wealth. The Rajba instructed the community to impose a tax on all the members of the community, and that the money should be collected and distributed in a dignified way to preserve the dignity of the poor. And this way, everybody is taken care of. In fact, this was the practice in all Jewish communities, and this Jewish community was going to be no exception as well. Recently, they said there was a rash of burglaries in synagogues. They said the thieves got off of millions of dollars of pledges. It's a joke. It's a joke. It's a joke. It's a joke. You see, of pledges. But in talking about it, it's interesting that a fascinating report from an outsider sees this as an unbelievable thing. While in Jewish communi- on other communities, other than Jewish communities, it didn't exist. There was a fellow by the name of Lancelot Addison. He was an English writer for the Church of England. He was a clergyman. And in the second half of the 17th century, 
This fellow Addison worked as a chaplain in Tangier, Morocco for seven years. And in Tangier, there was a very large Jewish community. And at that time, the English just started allowing Jews to move back to England. As you know, the Jewish people were expelled from England. And at that time, in the beginning of the 17th century, uh, and I'm sorry, the end of the 17th century, they were starting to allow Jews to come back. So this fellow wrote an observation about his seven years being in Africa. And he talks about how he observed the Jews, particularly in the communities, that he was there in North Africa. And one of the noteworthy observations that he makes is unbelievable, is how the Jewish people take care of the poor. Text number nine. This is from Lancelot Addison. It was called The Present State of the Jews, printed in 1675. Those who observed that the Jews have no beggars seem not well informed of the manner of their alms and the way they're providing for the poor. For it's true that we may not reckon these people among beggars, as that would usually imply seeking relief from house to house. For though among the Jews in Barbary, that's North Africa, there is a great store of needy persons, yet they are supplied for in a manner which much conceals the men of other religions, which is referring to the Muslims. Their poverty for their wealthier take care to provide for them and very much glorify their religion upon this very score. That they live under its profession in a more mutual charity and alms than they either the more, which was referred to as Muslims or Christian. Both of which have I heard upbraiding their common beggars, upbraiding their common beggars with their insult. And it cannot be denied that the Jews' manner of relieving the poor is proper and commendable. Over here you have an outsider who observed the way the Jewish community takes care of their poor people and saying, we got to learn from them. And that's why there was, oh, you're saying, oh, there's no beggars amongst the poor people. He said, there are poor people. It's just the poor people are not going around berated by the Jews. The Jews take care of them. There is a fund that supports all these people. Just interesting to note that in most religious Jewish communities today as well, not only religious, but in general, if you look at most of the hospitals, have all Jewish names on them. In today's day and age, um, you look, you go into Jewish communities today, for every type of thing you can think about, there's another fund and another organization that can help people, whether it's a person, the hospital person, almost going to the hospital person, at home with a person, it, every type of thing there is, and it's beautiful to see that there's so many charities and being supported all by local people, not by any federation, not by government funds, all supported by people who may not even have that much money. But the obligation to help and care for another person is a paramount and is integral and is part of the DNA of Jewish people, just like it was for millennia. Where do we see this? And we take this even a step further. Charity given in, uh, given in this fashion, as a contribution from a community, and then distributed to the poor, they have, and in fact, if you look in the Code of Jewish Law, it tells us of how it can be in charge of being the Gabite Staka, it's called, the trustworthy person to administer the charity to the places. And there's even different laws. There's even a story in the Talmud, which it says about a great uh, scholar of the Talmud, that they asked him, that, he, that they wondered why he was going to have a special place in heaven, so to speak. And the answer that was given he said, because once he mixed up, he was on Purim and he was collecting money for the poor. And he also had his own money. And he mixed up the two funds. And he put all his money in the money of the poor because since he mixed up the two. 
That was the type of people who administrated charity at the time. But the concept of is not only, as we mentioned, is different levels. We don't want the benefactor or the beneficiary to meet each other, so there shouldn't be embarrassment. People shouldn't be looking down at them, and therefore administrators are the ones that fund it. But that's, while that's a very high level, there's even a greater level than tzedakah. What's the greater level than tzedakah? And over here, the greater level in Tzedakah Maimonides tells us is the highest form of charity is provide means and with, with which a person can support himself. In text number 10, the highest form of charity is exceeded by none is that a person who assists poor Jews by providing them with a gift or a loan or making a business partnership with them or by finding them employment, supporting them so they will not come, come to need other people's help. Giving the poor person means that he can support himself, that's wonderful. Giving him a way that he can from now on support himself without even asking for charity, that is the greatest way. And this approach is the best way of helping the poor person by preventing them from being poor in the first place. This law, this idea, is echoed in biblical laws as well. Where is that echo? Where do we find it in the Torah? So, text number 11, you will see it says... You shall give the land as an inheritance to your families. A large family shall be given a larger inheritance and a smaller family should receive a smaller inheritance. The Torah over here is telling us that when the Jewish people came into the land of Israel, this is in the book of Numbers, where Moshe is instructing the Jewish people of how they should split up the land of Israel when the Jewish people come into the land of Israel. So the larger family will get a larger parcel of land a smaller family gets a smaller parcel of land. Makes sense, right? But what happens after entering the land? People are then able to, you know, people into real estate. What if I want to buy somebody else's property? Can I? How does that work? And the Torah tells us there's something called the Jubilee year. That every single 50 years, any land which was bought goes back to the original owner. Meaning, technically speaking, there is no such thing as buying land. You can lease land. Meaning, the land that you were given as a tribe when you came into the land of Israel is yours. Should you want to sell it, the buyer knows that he's only buying it only for a certain amount of years until the Jubilee year. So if there's seven years to the Jubilee year, he buys it for the value of what it's worth for seven years because when the Jubilee year comes, it goes back to its original owner. Let's see it in the words of the Torah in the book of Leviticus. If your fellow becomes poor and sells some of his inherited property, his nearest relative shall come and redeem his relative's sale. If there is no one to redeem it for him, but he later prospers and gains sufficient funds to redeem it himself, he shall calculate the value of the years in which the land has been sold and refund the balance to the man in whom he sold it. He can then return the inheritance um, turn it into his inheritance. But if he cannot afford to repay the buyer, what was sold shall remain in the buyer's possession until the Jubilee year. Then in the Jubilee year, the land shall refer to the possession of its ancestral owner. The Jubilee year, everybody went back to its original sale. So if we want to call it, any sale in Israel technically was only a lease for the amount of years that were left till the Jubilee year. This was every 50 years or 70 years? 50 years. Jubilee. What was the reason and the rationale behind it? No, no, oh, I had a question. Sure. I thought that um, we all lease the land because it's God's land. And God put everything on. That's in a metaphoric or 
in a theological, but we're talking about practically halachically. That means God gave us the land of Israel. We all own, every Jew owns a land in Israel. A piece of the land in Israel that we inherited. That's why the term inheritance was given for the land of Israel, not purchase. Because in inheritance, you don't need to do anything to inherit something. You can have a child that's born at the other end of the universe, automatically, even though it's a day old, automatically inherits its father's property just by the mere fact that it's its child. We, as Jewish people, just being that we are Jewish people, automatically the land of Israel belongs to us. We don't have to do anything for it. Now, what's the Torah's rationale here? And Rabbi Yosef of Orleans explains as follows, text number 12b. God established the Jubilee laws of the return of the land because one's livelihood depends on the possession of the fields that generate produce. God doesn't want a person to be left without means of livelihood and therefore instituted that the land cannot be sold forever. Listen to this, the genius of the way God set up the laws. The land of Israel is divided equally among people. Now, how do I make sure that we don't take advantage of when a person is downtrodden? What happens is, when I have real estate, I'm automatically financially stable. Why am I financially stable? Because I can now grow produce and get what I need from it. Over here, God is telling us, number one, God gave us every single personal land in Israel. It is yours for eternity. That means you always have a way to make a means to live. Because you have a land. Build something on it. Grow something on it. Whatever it may be. The Torah for, doesn't forbid a person selling his land, should he need to. But it always says, I can always get it back. I'm only leasing it temporarily. I need to make funds. It's like refinancing your property. You refinance because you need some cash, but your house is still yours. And eventually when you pay back the loan, it comes back to you. The same idea, the same system the Torah is telling us is, the same idea has this land possession that is geared to providing people with financial stability, thereby, number one, preventing them from becoming destitute. The Torah's approach to caring for the person who may not be financially well off is that each one of us has a personal and an individual and an individual and per, individual and communal obligation towards helping people. And each of these levels are protected on this way. Number one, I not only have to help a person, but we're into prevention. We want to stop the problem before it becomes a problem. Therefore, what do I do? I want to provide the person with a job. The Torah says, you have a land. Once you came into the land of Israel, you were given a property. Now, that's land ownership, which is the Torah is given to you, communal. Now, if I see that the person doesn't have money, what does the Torah tell me I need to do? I give them charity. On a communal perspective, I can tax the community that there should be a fund to help people who are less fortunate. So when we look at the land, as in text number 13 in the book of Leviticus, what does God tell us? Why should you not sell it permanently? Look at the words that God says in the book of Leviticus. The land shall not be sold permanently because the land is mine, like you mentioned. And you reside in my land as temporary dwellers and residents. God says, who gave you this land? It's really mine. 
And therefore, when I give you this land, the reason why the absolute ownership, and this is where the difference between our attitude as Jewish people when we view financial and materialistic gain as a Jew or as looking at it without Torah. The human condition tells me, one second, I bought a house, this house is mine. Absolute ownership. What does God come along and say? No, no, not so fast. God gave you your possessions. You're only living here on the lease. Remember that everything you have was only given to you by God. And therefore you have a right and an obligation to say, how can I get, take what God has given me to be fortunate with and share and help somebody else? In text number 14, he says as follows, Do not say, why should I deplete my funds by giving them to the poor? Understand that the money is naturally yours, but is a trust from God that must be administered in accordance with the wishes of the trust's owner. God's wish is that you disperse from the trust to the poor. The Hebrew word for charity, as I mentioned this many times before, is tzedakah. If you take the word tzedakah, it really doesn't translate to charity. The word tzedakah, root word, comes from tzedek, which means justice or righteousness, from like a tzedek. What is the Torah telling us when it tells us about tzedakah? You don't deserve a pat on your shoulder because since you helped another person. It's the right thing to do. It's obligated. It's obvious to the fact that you don't do it, you got a problem. You're not to be lauded and say, wow, you're an amazing person because you help somebody. Tzedakah means righteous, meaning it's the right thing that you should really be doing. It's radically different from any other type of relationship of other possessions where we have the influences. God says, I gave you money. You have money. Why did I give it to you? Yes, you can spend it and enjoy it but you have also an obligation that you should give it and help those in need. It's like I remember one philanthropist once said, God gives us money on a 90% commission. He says 10% you have to give, tithing you have to give away to charity, 90% you can keep. But if you don't give your 10%, if you don't give your 10% to the boss, then the 90% commission is not yours either. This Jewish vision is not only that Jews must give charity, is but that everybody has to be a giver. Thank God we live in a country which is America, which is considered a Medina Shal Chesed, a country of kindness, and it gives and it gives and it gives. But it wasn't always that way in the world. Even though, yes, everybody frowned upon the fact that Sodom and Gomorrah did not welcome guests, and they were punished because of it. But Sodom and Gomorrah were an extreme case. Today we care for the poor, and it's universally accepted as a virtue that we have to care for the poor. Of course, there's plenty debate, as within everything else, how we should do it, how much taxation, should it be a non-profit, should it be from the private sector, from the public sector, but everybody agrees there's no person in the world, even the biggest atheist, is going to say, that you charity is, is, all agree that charity is a noble act. And number two is that society has a responsibility to play in helping those people. There's a social responsibility that we have to help the people in need. Not only help, oh yeah, 
and elevating and, and alleviating, I'm sorry, and preventing people from becoming poor. Yes? You said 10% and 90% versus the 90%. So is that what we should give? Can you give 15%, 20%? Of course you can give more. We're talking about a minimum. Okay. Well, what's the maximum? Depending. It's the Talmud says in Code of Jewish Law, one should not give more than 20%. Mm-hmm. But if a person is so well off that 20% is not going to make a guy that's uh, g- making $50 billion, if he gives 20%, he'll still have what to live, he can give more than 20%. No, but I just want to give an example um, where it says that you should give, but you don't say that you give, you know, so nobody knows. Um, we were in Lincoln Center, and we were in um, the Philharmonics, and on the wall you see a lot of names. And you see a lot of company names, but you see a lot of names that can be identified as Jewish names. So we're standing by the elevator, and one of the men said, see, I told you they were rich. Look at all their names on the <laughs> yeah. wall. Yep. Um, so if, if we follow the more appropriate way... Well, I'll, I'll get to that in a moment, because there is a concept which is called mitzvah lefar semaisa mitzvah. It's a mitzvah to publicize those people that do a mitzvah. But we'll talk about it in just a second, this exact point. But as intuitive as it appears to us in today's society, this was not always the case. Not only not always the case, but far from it. In ancient civilizations, in Rome and Greek, in the Romans and the Greeks, they almost, uh, to a great extent, demeaned the poor, knocked the poor, didn't besides not only helping them, as we're soon going to see. And we'll soon see the following text describes their attitudes about poor and charity. Text number 15a. In Greek culture, the well-to-do were never expected to support to help the poor. The Greek word, and listen to this because today we call them philanthropists, the Greek word philanthropia never had the sense of our modern philanthropy. Even though today we use it as philanthropy, but the word, the original Latin word, one is philanthropists, towards one's people, parents, and other family members, and guests or strangers, not toward the poor. You see? For exhortation to give alms to the poor, one looks in vain to Greek and Roman literature. Greek moralists do not admonish people who concern themselves about the fate of the poor, except incidentally when someone had been unexpectedly hit with a great catastrophe, to be sure, generosity was praised as a virtue, but the poor were never singled out as, an, as its object. It was always directed to humans in general. When Greek literature speaks about the joy of giving to others, it has nothing to do with altruism, but only with the desired effect of giving, namely honor, prestige, fame, and status. Honor is the driving motive behind the Greek beneficence, beneficence and it is the reason that the Greek word philotomonia, love and honor, also philodoxia, could develop the meaning of generosity, beneficence not directed towards the poor, but fellow humans in general, especially those one whom can reasonably expect a gift to return. It is stated all simply by Hesuit, give, the, give to him who gives, but do not give to him who does not give in return. So you see something very clearly here, in just another text over here, text 15b. Charity found little scope in its frugal life. Hospitality survived as mutual convenience at a time when inns were poor and far between. But the sympathetic Plobius report that in Rome, no one ever gives anything to anyone if he can help it. 
doubtless an exaggeration. So what you see very clearly here, that the Romans and the Greeks were not people who were charitable. Number one, even when they did give money, it wasn't focused on the poor. There was a problem, okay, let's try to help and solve that problem. It so happens to me that the beneficiary happens to be poor people. They didn't even have poor people in their lexicon. Even when they were giving charity, it was only because I want to be able to, as you said, be on a board so somebody should see my name, so then the next time I come to ask him for my organization, he should also give. It was an altruistic, it wasn't altruistic, I'm sorry. It was more about receiving the honor, the pleasure, looking to see what they can get from it. Yes, there were Jews throughout history who also gave charity for self-reasons and fame, but the difference is that Jewish people within their DNA, yes, there were those for the fame, but they also on the side were giving to the simple guy that came knocking on the door that wasn't giving them a plaque. So all of these cases, what we see over here clearly is that, yes, what today we take for granted was not always the case. Not only not always the case, but the opposite. Today we've come a long way. And today we've come a long way that Judaism has so much changed the environment that we're in that the world today understands the absolute responsibility in giving and taking care of the poor. And there are four things, four steps, if we want to talk about in social responsibility for the poor. What are those four steps of tzedakah are as follows. Number one, we must give charity to the poor. Simply put, you see a poor person, what can you do to help them? Number two, charity should be managed by communal authorities. Like this, you avoid people being embarrassed. Number three, help people provide for themselves. Help them get jobs. And number four, the economy should be structured in a way that prevents poverty to begin with. Whether it's through education, job fears, skills-based, whatever it may be, to structure in a way that we can make sure that people can earn a livelihood. Yes, there will always be people that are less fortunate, and that's why we have to make sure. And the interesting thing is that when we look at Christianity and Islam, who have also adopted the concept of giving charity to the poor, none of them ever adopted the concept of a communal fund that supports the poor people. Until late in America, there's, of course, there are charity churches and everything else that give soup kitchens and all that stuff. But years ago, especially in the times of the Romans, they were Christians, they had no such thing. It was always they passed around the basket, everybody gave in, and then or if there was a poor guy sitting in the front of the church, and that's what they gave the money to. The poor people had to fend for themselves. The concepts of charity should be managed by communal authorities and all these different types of things only came about through Judaism. And these are the four basic tenets that we saw today in the Torah, within the laws of the Torah, within the DNA of the Jews, which today have become part of society. So as we said before and as we started this class, these ideas, the, Ju the gift that Judaism gave to the world, this gift of charity, of thinking, of caring for another person. Here's a short video that underscores it.
structure their economies to minimize poverty. But how and when did these priorities become the norm? The answer draws us back to the ancient saga of the rise and fall of the Roman Republic. Founded in 509 BCE, the Roman Republic was history's first representative democracy. Its citizens elected administrative bodies that ruled the state. That sounds progressive, but the Republic was structurally biased against its common citizens. The Republic was dominated by a Senate, operated by elite nobility, known as patricians, from the Latin word for fathers. All other citizens were called plebeians, or simply plebs, regular non-privileged people, and they operated a plebeian council with significantly lesser powers. Inequality was aggravated when the Republic captured vast territories and enslaved foreign populations. The nobility seized the land, along with the enormous slave force of captives, denying the ordinary plebs any share. This combination of free land and labor led to vast plantations for the elite, who then sold products at greatly reduced prices, forcing plebeian farmers to abandon their small farms and denying jobs to Romans. The result was overcrowded cities filled with poor, unemployed citizens. Discontent simmered until, in the second century BCE, two brothers rocked the foundations of Roman society. Tiberius Gracchus was elected to head the Plebeian Council. Determined to improve the law of his fellow commoners, his central policy was an agrarian law, enforcing the redistribution of conquered land that had been seized by the nobility. But the Patrician Senate did not appreciate this legislation. The ensuing political crisis led to the murder of Tiberius and many of his supporters at the hands of a Senate-mobilized mob. Tiberius's brother Gaius tried to revive his slain brother's policies, but he met a similar bloody end. The Patricians had stifled land ownership reform, but the strife unleashed by this conflict continued to ferment and eventually led to the collapse of the Roman Republic one century later. On the ruins of the Republic, the dictatorial Roman Empire arose. With their Republic dead, ancient Roman historians analyzed its failures and arrived at a far-reaching conclusion. It was the fault of the Gracchi brothers' attempt to involve the government in economic reform. The Gracchi planned to level the playing field at the expense of the nobility's powerful monopoly had invited destabilizing class warfare. And therefore, all future governments must avoid legislation aimed at fair distributions of land or wealth at all costs. This way of thinking became an orthodoxy in political theory for the next millennia and a half. But in the 17th century, perspectives began to shift. The Renaissance and the Protestant Reformation led scholars to delve deeply into Jewish texts. The Hebrew Bible, its Jewish commentaries, the Talmud, Maimonides, Kabbalah, and Jewish history. One Dutch scholar, Petrus Canaeus, born in 1586, made a compelling case for modeling contemporary European society on what he called the Hebrew Republic, the ancient civilization established by the Jews in the Holy Land based on the Torah's laws. He was fascinated by Yobel, the Jubilee Laws, which guaranteed that each Jewish family would own land, 
that would not be permanently removed or sold, even due to poverty. Cuneus identified Yolo as the Torah's successful predecessor to Rome's failed agrarian law, and he therefore insisted that providing the poor with economic opportunity secured by land ownership was a golden key to the survival and success of a civilization. This was a radical argument, turning centuries of political thought on its head. Cuneus's conclusion was enthusiastically adopted by the great English Republican, James Harrington. In his 1656 vision of the perfect republic, Harrington incorporated fair distribution as a vehicle to enable economic independence for all citizens as a key component. Harrington's writings fluttered across the Atlantic, heavily influencing the founding fathers of the United States, and especially Thomas Jefferson, the third American president. Jefferson turned his Torah-inspired ideals into a campaign to establish a fair republic by preventing the rise of an aristocracy. He abolished land ownership laws that concentrated land in the hands of the wealthy few and strove to establish free public education for all children, regarding educational opportunity as critical to economic opportunity. The rest is history. Government action to empower the poor and improve economic opportunity for all citizens is now unanimously accepted as integral to free democratic society. But the route this idea traveled remains remarkable. From the Torah's concept of Yom to its ancient Jewish implementation of the land of Israel, from the Talmud's exposition, to Maimonides' codification of social laws, and then a great leap across cultures to Petrus Kinneus, the 17th century author of the Hebrew Republic, and further across the channel to English political theorist James Harrington, and further yet to American founding father Thomas Jefferson, and finally from America to the wider world, social welfare and equal opportunity are remarkable gifts of the Jews. So what we have, as you can see, to the next step, and of course to conclude today, is to make this all practical. It's very nice that we gave this gift to the world, but we still need to unpack what this gift of Judaism is to us. And in many ways we've now come a full circle from a society that was totally reliant on individuals helping the poor on their own, to now a society which we've reached the opposite extreme, that we want the government to do everything for us. I'm not saying uh, what government should or should not do, and that will leave for the politicians to debate. But what we're saying is that we're, there's a basic underlying question that we need to ask ourselves is when was the actually the last time that we actually helped somebody? What are we doing with actually helping somebody? You know, it's very easy, you know, the guy that was uh, backing out of his driveway and smashed a car while he was backing out, so the other guy stopped and says, where are you going? He says, well, I'm running to a World Peace Conference. You know, it's very easy to run to a World Peace Conference while we don't get along with our neighbors. Or the people that make sit-ins in City Hall while they go and urinate on somebody's property because they're making sit-ins in City Hall for equality, right? So each person, we have to remember that sometimes when we talk about responsibility for other people, we sometimes lose our moral compass of what it really means, responsibility for another person. And especially in a time and a day and an age where we live with uh, social media 
exasperating certain things or um, doing other things like, let's say, people demonstrating in the middle of a highway and blocking off the street and because of that delaying people going to work while while they're demonstrating for fairness and equality while people can't go do their job, right? So there's a lot of disconnect in what we really call helping another person or caring for another person. So here are just some examples where we have to, where we can continue to uh, look into ourselves and see we can, where we can take this and make this a little more practical. Is number one, government doesn't replace social responsibility. We shouldn't say it's all the governments now. I pay my taxes. I don't have to give charity anymore. On the contrary, when you give charity, you get a tax deduction. That's one of the good things in America, right? That you can give charity and help people and at the same time, the government recognizes and acknowledges your good deed in a way that you can get a tax deduction. So, number, th- number two, most important is tithe of all income. It is very important that when we get, get something and when we earn money, we also take a little bit of that money and give it to charity. In fact, the word in Hebrew, just a little uh, um, tidbit here, a little trivia here. You know, what is it called? The word that goes both ways. Come on. No? An amigram, huh? An, anag- huh? an anagram? Yes. An anagram. An anagram doesn't go both ways. A palagram. Pa- pa- huh? Palad, no, not a palagram. Palindrome. Palindrome. They said. They said. Palindrome. Palindrome. There you go. Palindrome. There you go. Okay, uh, it's all good, anyways. But as long as you get the point, as long as you know what I'm saying. So the word in the Hebrew for venusnu and you will give can be read both ways, like Bob. You know. So venusnu that when you will give vav nun saf nun vav. When you will give, God says, I give you back. And you don't have to be a wealthy person to be able to give. You make $100, you take $10, you give it to charity, that in itself, God gives you that the next time they should be able to make $1,000, you can give $100 to charity. So it's very important to give 10% of your income to charity regardless of how much you make. Number three, also another, huh? What did that mean? Vinasnu, and you shall give. Another important thing is to give charity on a recurring basis, meaning every single day, even if it's a little bit, to every single day to give charity. Before you start to pray, the Baal Shem Tov and the Alter Rebbe also writes in the prayer book, before we begin to pray, we should give some money to charity on a recurring basis so it becomes ingrained within you, whether it's a coin, a dollar, five dollars, whatever it is, to give charity. I'll make a little pitch over here. We have something called Club 365 or High Circle that you can give a certain amount every single month on a recurring basis, which helps you give tzedakah every single day. Number two, number four is we have over here, if you'd like, these are small ones, but we can get you big ones too, which are charity boxes. It's important that a person has in their home, in their car, wherever they go. These are small for the car. To always to give tzedakah. Whenever you think about somebody else, you should know God's thinking about you. But even more so, the Rebbe used to encourage, and we have it if you notice in the kitchen here also, it's hanging on the wall, that you should put a tzedakah box on the wall. It should be part of your house. That not only are you a person that gives charity, but your home becomes a home of charity. You'll see a lot of pushkas that are having the back a little latch so you can hang it on a nail in the house. And the purpose of that is that the whole entire home should become a home of charity, that we should live in a very charitable place. Uh, as we also find, and number, th- and number four, 
Uh, number five, I'm sorry. Charity at official events. The Rebbe encouraged that whenever there was an inauguration or an invocation, a rabbi went to give a speech or someplace, but it was open fact that it was Rabbi Butman, he did New York State Assembly, he would start off by giving a dollar to charity, that yes, the government gets together to do many beautiful, social, wonderful things, but if we don't connect it with action, that many times action is what's missing, in, especially in the government and in official uh, capacities. And at any event where Jews get together, there should always be charity given. In text number 16, the, the Maimonides puts it this way, the single act of giving 1,000 gold coins to a worthy recipient is not cultivated and benefactor. The same spirit of generosity does, does, as it does distributing 1,000 gold coins 1,000 separate occasions. In the later instance, the benefactor acts generously 1,000 times, thereby firmly implanting this trait in his or her own personality. In the former instance, the individual is only inspired at one occasion after which the inspiration dissipates. Maimonides over here tells us the advantage of giving tzedakah on a recurring basis. The advantage is when you give tzedakah once, I get inspired, I can give a million dollars to charity. That's a beautiful thing. But imagine if you now go and spread that over every single day of the year. You give a dollar. Every day when you wake up, you put a dollar in the pushka. What is that? Every single day it inspires you to help and to be generous and to be kind and to be thinking about another person. And if you're worried that you might become, oh, you know, they might put up a plaque because of it and you might all of a sudden get some ego because of it. So I'll conclude today with a quick story. There was this individual who was uh, a very wealthy individual where the Alter Rebbe used to stay, the first Chabad Rebbe used to stay when he went uh, on different meetings to a place in Russia. And he once confided in the Alter Rebbe and he said, you know, I happen to be a very wealthy person and I give a charity and I like to give the charity. It makes me, you know, uh, I'm the man in town that everybody's coming to ask for charity and I feel like I'm getting a little egotistic because of it. The Alter Rebbe looked at him and said, he says, what do you care if you're getting egotistic, but the bottom line is that the poor man is becoming satiated. The bottom line is we have to look at if you're helping somebody else and that person's being helped, that's the most important thing. And we have to never lose focus on what our job is when it comes to being charitable. Yes, it's not about you becoming, of course it helps you become a better person, but more importantly it's about you helping that other person. So, what do you do, so just to conclude today, what do you do, what do you know that may be, who, I'm sorry, who do you know that may be in help? What action can you take over the following week to help them? Let's think of ways that we can contribute to society and make people better. Just a quick uh, review of what we learned today. Oops, let me just go back one second before we go to the next week. No man and island. One, responsibility for others as exemplified by our forefather Abraham is a basic principle of the Torah that animates many of its book. Two, in Jewish law, charity is both an individual as well as a communal imperative. Jewish law maintains that A, the dignity of the poor must be preserved, B, people may be compelled to contribute, and C, the wealthier people are, the more they must contribute. The combination of these principles results in the traditional Jewish practice of providing for the poor through the payment of a tax to a communal charity fund. 3. 
The highest form of charity is to prevent someone from falling into need. The Jubilee laws that guaranteed land ownership for all Jews in the land of Israel served this purpose. Four, the Torah approach to charity functions on two levels, preventing poverty and caring for the poor. Within both of these levels, individual as well as communal efforts are required. Five, the underlying Torah theory of charity is that all of our material possessions ultimately belong to God. We hold them as a trust on God's behalf and must use them to benefit the needy in accordance with His instruction. 6. The ancient world, including the great Greek and Roman civilizations, did not adopt the Jewish value of caring for others and did not practice charity. The personal mandate to help the needy reached the world only after the Christians adopted it. 7. The now universal concept of structuring the economy to minimize poverty can be traced from the mitzvah of the Jubilee year to 17th century Hebraists and all the way to Thomas Jefferson and the founding fathers of the United States. Next week, we continue with Discovering one, the extraordinary impact of monotheism. We will explore the Torah's account of creation and its underlying message and the impact of monotheism and how we think about life. Any questions? Yeah. So most of the charity that you've been talking about is in the form of giving money. Is there another way to just like 